0: Well, good morning, y'all. Good morning. Good morning. I hope uh, you're doing all right today. And uh, if not, I hope you know why, and I hope you've, uh, you've got something going to make it a better day than it is right now. Now, I'm going to start out uh, talking to y'all about Summit Christian College, which is where I go to school, and it's also the organization that I'm here representing today. It's Love Month, and this is the time of which is just a fancy way of saying they send people out to thank supporters and to sort of tell them what's going on. So that's what I'm going to do here. Got to start saying thank you for your support. Summit doesn't run on nothing. It's um. You gotta pay the bills somehow, and contributions from churches like this one are what keeps that going. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, oh, we're a small church, our support can't be that much. What do you have any idea how much money I make or any of these students make? <laughs> it makes more of a difference than you think. Because we have so many people like you who support us you know we can we can actually afford to go to college without going into debt which isn't such a big deal if you're going say into the medical field because you know you're going to have you know you'd expect to have a reasonably paying job but we're going into ministry most of us are going to be just as broke once we're out of school as we are in school <laughs> and if you're trying to Go to the mission field in Siberia or some random spot in Southeast Asia. Well, good luck doing that with forty, fifty thousand dollars in student loan debt. With how Summit is funded, we can graduate with no debt. We can go to those out of the way corners on a shoestring. And your support of Summit also helps with keeping sound doctrine in churches. Well, I'm going to be preaching out of Jude this morning, and the main theme of Jude is false teaching. And one of the really big countermeasures to that that the early church could take was having educated leaders who knew the Bible, who knew the truth, and you know when you when you're done with a four-year degree at Summit, you better believe you're going to know the truth, or you're not graduating. And so I just want to conclude saying thank you again. This college doesn't exist without people like you giving faithfully, even if it's just a little bit. Now let's get on to the sermon. So. I said, preaching today out of the book of Jude. And I'm going to start with a question. And it may seem a little shocking, but I promise it'll make sense by the time I'm done. The question is, would you accept a blood transfusion from an AIDS patient? It's probably going to be a no. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Let me... Pull up Jude here on my Now, bit of background before I start on Jude. It's along with Second and Third John, as well as Philemon, probably one of the least studied New Testament books. And I think that is a shame. It has a lot more than you'd expect from a 617-word document. The Sermon manuscript is almost 4,000 words for context. It's a very small book. Now, it was written, as you'd expect, by a fellow named Jude, who was the brother of James, who wrote the book of James, also a brother of Jesus. Unfortunately, we don't have a whole lot of other information about Jude. He was probably a leader in the Jerusalem church, and Jude itself, the letter, seems to assume that whoever is reading it has a lot of Jewish cultural knowledge and background. Now, we don't know exactly when Jude was written seems to quote 2 Peter, so probably sometime after that. Um, One of my textbooks was saying 66 through 80 AD, and that seems reasonable enough. And his big idea is he's warning against false teachers and encouraging his readers to build up their own faith, rescue those in danger, and trust in Jesus. But enough from me. Let's see what Jude has to say. Jude 1, and I'm reading from the NIV. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn the devil for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's era. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. And Korah is someone you're going to hear a little bit more about um, in Josh's Exodus series, unless you already went over it, I don't know exactly where he's at. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain blown along by the wind. Autumn trees, without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars, for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness. And of all the defiant words, ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These people are grumblers and fault-finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, In the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have a spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupting to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Christ Jesus our Lord before all ages, now, and forevermore. Amen. And so that is the entire book of Jude. Now, most people don't read Jude a whole lot. One of the reasons, at least among the slightly more educated Bible reader is that it might quote Second Peter, but it definitely quotes some of the apocryphal books, which non-Catholics tend to be a little gun-shy about. doesn't mean Jude itself is an apocryphal book. One of my school books um, has this to say. Verse 9 alludes to the assumption of Moses. Verses 14 and 15 clearly quote from the book of Enoch. These are apocryphal books. We don't recognize them as part of the Bible. But that doesn't mean Jude was affirming the authority of these books. He was just using them to illustrate a point, much like Paul did when he cited the Greek poets Aratus in Acts 17.28, Menander in 1 Corinthians 15.33, and Epimenides in Titus 1.12. So again, you can read Jude confident that it is in fact the inspired word of God. That was a concern anyone had. Now, Jude goes into some detail, as we read, regarding false teachers he had in mind. They were ungodly, immoral, and disowned or denied or rejected Jesus. They are also aggressive self-promoters, grumblers, skilled in the art of flattery. Now, I'm sure none of us have ever seen or heard of these things being an issue in a modern church, right? Given this is not a church history class about how we eradicated these things and is instead a sermon, we're going to look at a few examples of it. One kind of false teacher you've probably heard of is the prosperity preacher. Their teacher, their teaching boils down to Jesus died to make you rich and happy in this life, and then you go to heaven if you donate to my ministry. Hallelujah! (laughs) The rich part is, shockingly enough, kind of attractive to Americans for some reason. And so the people who preach this so-called gospel tend to be pretty wealthy themselves. It's almost like there's something in the Bible that mentions people wanting their ears tickled. More on that in a moment. In any case, prosperity preachers accumulate so much money, that one of them, a fellow by the name of Jesse DePlantis, got into hot water for asking his congregation to buy him a fourth private jet. He justified this by saying that flying on commercial airlines was like being stuffed in a tube full of demons. He said that. I'm not going to say I don't kind of understand that after having flown on airlines, but I'm just going to say Paul was pretty confident that God would bring him safely to his heavenly kingdom. And he wrote that knowing that he was going to lose his head in fairly short order. That's 2 Timothy 4.18. Paul could say that maybe we could live through a six-hour flight. Some more scripture on the prosperity gospel. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's John 15, 18, 18 through twenty. Another quote from Jesus, Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Remember what Jude had to say about denying Jesus? He didn't mean people saying Jesus doesn't exist, although I'm sure it would apply to that as well, but people renouncing or rejecting Jesus. This particular tradition dates back to at least Genesis 3. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. I think the prosperity gospel is a pretty good modern example of this. You can certainly serve two masters, the serpent said on television. Another modern example is progressive Christianity. It is neither progressive, and I would argue it is not Christianity either. This particular flavor of heresy claims to set the record straight regarding Christianity. That's from a progressive Christian. That's what they say. A lot of it's just attacking right-wing Christian nationalism. And that is an issue, but that's also another sermon. For now, here's what one progressive Christian says regarding the Bible. The stories of a loving God are true and strong. The stories of a vengeful God are false. Another progressive says, Jesus was merely an extraordinary young man. And later saying, superhuman as we sometimes are in various degrees. The English translation of this is, The parts of the Bible I like are true, and the ones I don't like are false. And Jesus was only human and certainly not actually any better than us. I am not telling you to believe that. I'm telling you that's what they believe. So let's look at the Bible what the Bible has to say about these things. All scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3.16. Notice what it says. All Scripture. What about Jesus? Well, John 1, 1-4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was God. Keep that in mind. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. A few verses later, the word, the word that was God, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, That's John 1.14. You notice how progressive Christianity denies Jesus as well? We just read in John that Jesus is equal with God. For progressives, he's an extraordinary young man who is really not any different from us. The same thing with the Bible. If I'm a progressive Christian, I just say, I don't like that part. That's not real Bible, because I don't like it. So that's just two of the myriad flavors of false teaching. If I went all over all of them, this sermon would never end. So let's look at how we can respond to this. And I'm going to start with a few approaches that I'm going to say probably don't work. Maybe we should avoid and then see what Jude has to say on the subject as to what we should actually do. The first one I'm going to look at is, we will ignore the problem and hope it goes away. I think you can probably see the issue with that. Christians often deal with false teachers by ignoring them. After all, they're not usually in this particular church building. So what does it matter to us? I think um, a way I like to refer to this is the Neville Chamberlain approach. If you didn't know, Chamberlain was the Prime Minister of Britain when the Second World War broke out and had taken the approach of appeasing Hitler instead of saying no to him. You've most likely heard part of this quote before. My good friends, for the second time in our history, British Prime Minister has returned from Germany bringing peace with honor. I believe it is peace for our time. Go home and get a nice quiet sleep. He said that in September of 1938. In September of 1939, after Hitler decided Czechoslovakia wasn't enough, he went for Poland, and we all know how that went from there. This doesn't work with false teachers either. While we're at home getting that nice, quiet sleep, the enemy is hard at work. If you think ignoring lies, ignoring... Teachers who are teaching falsely or who do not live by what they teach. If you think that's going to work, the next time you've got a bottle of milk in your fridge that smells just a little bit sour, try putting it back and uh, hoping that it will smell better next time. (laughs) So I think we've uh, beaten that horse enough. Let's move on to the next one. We let the false teachers in, we let people in who are, who Jude is talking about, and we just hope that um, our Christian community and influence will change them by itself. It's a bit like ignoring them from a distance, but we're going to let them in now because Jesus loves this person, right? Right? It makes sense. Being among Christians who are more or less doing right should just influence the false teacher or the false believer into repenting, shouldn't it? And maybe sometimes it does. Maybe. Maybe. While there's something to be said for dragging people out of the fire, we need to be careful that we're not just spreading the flames to where we are. Another way of putting this, remember that blood transfusion thing? Are you gonna take a blood transfusion from someone who has AIDS since it's it's just a little bit of bad blood coming in, and your good blood should influence the infected cells to just be healthy again? That is what letting in false teaching does. Revelation two, eighteen through twenty-five. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you're doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Theotira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Revelation is a lot more useful of a book than people sometimes give it credit for, since we mostly just concentrate on, oh, what is this thing in Revelation? How does it match up with what's in the news? Don't do that. But in this part specifically, there are a few parallels between our text in Jude and this part of Revelation. In a lot of ways, the first three chapters of Revelation, you could call a sequel to Jude. Some of the churches have followed the warnings, some very much have not, and some are just kind of in the middle, like the church at Theatira that we just read about, and you can see what God has to say to all of them. So if you get bored in the middle of the week, go read the first three chapters of Revelation with Jude and also Second Peter in mind. We'll even go do that if you aren't bored, it's well worth the time. The big thing I want you to see here is that this Jezebel was not being purified because she was in the middle of genuine believers. It went the opposite way. And I don't know any reason to assume that this is different now than it was. I'm going to note right here, this doesn't mean we never talk to people who aren't living right or people who are believing a false gospel but that we need to avoid getting infected with whatever falsehood, whatever immoral living they are suffering from. More on that later. So let's look at another way churches sometimes respond to false teaching. And this is with hatred, condemnation. A good example of this is the Westboro Baptist Church or the Spanish Inquisition. Westboro is a hate group that calls itself a church. I would refer you to their website, but I can't say it out loud in here because it contains an obscenity. They they think God hates gay people, among others, except they don't use the word gay. A fair portion of what they preach is actually not unbiblical, but their approach to other people's sin is interesting, to put it more politely than I should. They're correct in saying homosexual relationships are sinful when they say that God himself hates the people who are in this sin, they're wrong. A couple of scriptures on that. Luke five twenty-nine through 31. Then Levi, or Matthew the Apostle, as we usually know him, held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others, most translations tend to render others as sinners, just so you can see how the Pharisees were looking at it, were eating with them. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Pharisees are confused that Jesus is eating with the icky people who we hate. Having a meal with somebody in that culture was seen as an endorsement of that person. So it's understandable that the Pharisees might actually be a bit confused. What the Pharisees and the Westboro types miss is that Jesus is not endorsing the sin that the tax collectors are very likely, in fact, committing. Tax collectors were not known for their virtue. Jesus is calling them out of it by going to them. If God hates sinners... Why is he eating with them? Another scripture, Luke six forty one through 42. Not too far after this one. Could be a reason for that. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And I would say this is the Pharisees' mistake in the previous passage. The sinners they're criticizing Jesus for eating with, it's quite possible they are every bit as simple as the Pharisees believe they are. Like I said, tax collectors weren't known for being virtuous. But the Pharisees are not looking in the mirror nor does it seem from what we have recorded everywhere in the Gospels that they were at all interested in actually removing specks from anyone's eyes. You have to wonder if this isn't Jesus just being a little bit sarcastic with his opponents. But check your own eye first so you can help other people. You you were going to help them, right? Right? And that's the problem with the hate the center, the God hates the sinner response. When you come to the conclusion that God hates the person who's wrong on something, be that doctrine, lifestyle, or what have you, you've created a false teaching of your own, even if you don't say it out loud. So, how do you actually respond? Let's jump back to Jude real quick. Jude 17-25. through But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to ret- to bring you to eternal life. Pay attention to the order that Jude is saying these things. It matters. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupt flesh. And so you see this order in here. So let's go through that. First, don't be surprised that this kind of thing is happening. Paul, among so many others, Jesus included, had warned about this. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 4. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss. And Jude himself notes a few instances of this happening before. Korah's rebellion, Balaam, all the way back to Cain in Genesis. It ain't nothing that hasn't happened before. And it's going to happen again. The next step, build up your own faith. Remember the Apostles' teaching. What is the Apostles' teaching? Um, we've read 2 Timothy 3.16. And I'm going to pull up something from 2 Peter 2 Peter 1.5-9. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, Building up your own faith comes before having mercy on others. And we're going to talk about that. You have mercy on the people who have been deceived. Snatch them from the fire. Matthew seven twenty one through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and do many powerful deeds? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you lawbreakers. Jude concentrates on leaders, but the people who are listening to them are not any better off. Nowhere does the Bible give an exemption from consequences to the people who weren't leaders but just follow Christ. People following false teachers will say, Lord, Lord, with them. And will be told with them, go away from me. Now, if we look again, there, we see others snatched from the fire. What is hating clothing stained with Oh, corrupted flesh I mean. What does that mean? Well, if you look, mercy mixed with fear. Because when you're going out, if you're dealing with someone who's deceived, who's living immorally, remember, you can become like them. It's not you just because you want to fix somebody does not mean that it can't go the other way. And so you need to be careful, very careful, in dealing with the apostate. I hope you can begin to see why June deserves more attention than it usually gets. It deals with some of the stickiest problems we have in the church today and provides a roadmap for how you as an individual should respond to false teaching. Build up your faith. Get into the Bible. Read it. If you don't understand it, there are so many ways these days that you can find out what is missing from your knowledge to get that understanding. You talk to Josh, you can talk to Stu or Ron. If they don't know the answer, they'll probably know how to find it. Establish habits of regularly spending time in prayer. Remember, Jude says to pray in the spirit. And by regularly, I mean that it's more than once a month. If I say I pray on the fifth of each month, that's not regular. I'm in a Bible college. It's easy enough for me to forget these things. And I'm, you know, planning to go into ministry. This is what I study. And I'm sure it's easy enough for everyone else here, too. You start with the basics and you keep them up. You will have done well. And when you see somebody falling into the kind of trap that Jude is talking about here, remember how we're told to respond. Love them. Bring them back. Show mercy. But do not get pulled in to the trap that they themselves are in. And finally, keep in mind who is making this possible. Whose glory we do this all for. You have to be operating in the power of God, not the power of me or you or someone you know who's a Christian. I'm going to close with final two verses of you, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now, and forevermore. Amen. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, we ask that you would guide our steps, guide our hearts and minds, our hands, our eyes through this week. I pray that you would show us all where perhaps we ourselves have been deceived or maybe even are deceiving others. I pray that you would correct our courses, and that you would show us if there are people who you would have us rescue ourselves, not in ourselves, but in you. We thank you and we praise you for all this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.